I want to take some time and think about the scene here. The scene is familiar to us, but, but we need to let it sink into us a little bit. Israel has finally come to Sinai. We've been hearing about Mount Sinai. We've been hearing about the place that God is calling them out to, to meet with Him and to worship Him for some time. And, and you know that God has brought them out in a spectacular way to this place in the wilderness beyond the sea, beyond Egypt, and beyond the reach of Pharaoh, where God had called them to meet with him and to worship him. And here on Sinai, God has come down. And the scene is terrifying. And the holiness of God is manifest before them. I want to go back. It's alluded to here. It's, it's present here in verse 18, but I want to go back to chapter 19 for just a moment and, and read the description of, of what took place on the third day. There, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It took nerve to ascend Mount Sinai at that moment. The mountain had been off limits and guarded for three days in preparation of the Lord's visit. And the people had been warned not to touch it and that anyone or any animal that did was to be stoned. And during those three days, the people were instructed to set themselves apart, to consecrate themselves as they prepared to be summoned by the trumpet blast to meet their God. And that was their sign, their signal, the blast of the trumpet. And when the trumpet blasted, they were to come out of the camp and they were to draw near to the mountain so that they might meet their God. And the trumpet blasted, and Moses led them out, and they came to the base of the mountain. And Moses went up to receive further instructions from God, but to his surprise, God sent him right back down the mountain, right back down to the people, and told him to redouble their efforts to secure the mountain, lest any of them break through and God break out against them. This is serious business. This is the business of life and death. They are about to meet their holy God, the living God, as a sinful and fallen people. And Moses did what he was told. He hesitates. He wonders if it's necessary. But he was obedient and he descended again to the people, and while he was with them, God spoke to them in the hearing of the whole congregation. 
he gave them the Decalogue, these 10 words, beginning with a very vivid reminder of who he is and what he has done for them. This is the backdrop to these 10 words and to our passage here immediately following it. The trembling mountain, the dark enveloping cloud, the flashes of lightning, the claps and rumbling of thunder, the consuming fire, the piercing blast of the trumpet that rises above all the rest and grows louder and louder, summoning the people to the living God. And, and then he speaks, the voice of God himself, declaring who he is and, and who they are and what he has done for them. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is their God. This is the living God. And there is none like him. You shall have no other gods before me. Write whatever you say. We'll do it. How could they not? At this moment, the people are terrified. This manifestation of God's presence is overwhelming. They are staggered. They're astounded by his holiness. And they ought to be. Who could not be? How could they possibly imagine turning away from him at this moment or, or breaking any other commandment that he might issue them? Whatever it might be, however impossible it might seem to them in that moment, how could they say no? How could they say, wait a minute, let's talk about that one. And yet, there's something I think we need to see here that I want us to think about here in chapel this morning, and that is this, that there's a kind of fear, a kind of fear that is at work in them in that moment that will undermine the very obedience that they promise to render him. And it's in them, and it's, it's at work right now, and it's undermining their obedience even as they speak, even as they are promising to listen and to obey. God and everything. They are shrinking back from the mountain. They are pulling away from the terrifying spectacle. It's understandable. We can probably relate to them, but here's the point. They are balking at the summons of the trumpet, and they're begging to hear no more and to see no more of God himself. Where is their hope? Where is their heart? What do they long for? And so they backed away and stood far off. You speak to us, they tell Moses, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, this is just the way we are too sometimes at least, and to one degree or another, all the time maybe. So many Peters, we might say, boasting in all sincerity in the moment that we are ready to die for the Lord while completely overlooking the many simple ways that we're failing to serve him today. Right here, right now, disobedient, in the very moment that we imagine so much better of ourselves. 
How can we be heroic tomorrow if we are faithless and prayerless and despairing today? In so many ways and over such small things. When we're put to the test, when we hear the blast of the trumpet summoning us to come up and draw near to the holy God, and it is time to find out what is in us, what we love, what we hope for, what we live for, how does it go? Apart from the grace of God, we would all shrink back toward the camp and start looking around for a tree or a rock to hide behind and stumble and fall as we scurry away like startled burglars when somebody turns on the light. Adam and Eve were afraid to meet God too, and they hid among the trees of the garden, we are told. And you know also that the world, at the end of the world, all kinds of people, from the greatest to the least, will run to the mountains and call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the one who is seated on the throne. And all between Eden and the end of the age, there is a kind of fear of God that is found everywhere that does not lead to obedience, it does not lead to worship, it does not draw near when it is summoned, but it retreats and hides from the living God. This kind of fear tries to escape, it tries to block out the knowledge of Him, to avoid every reminder of Him, and to twist the truth that is so clearly and plainly revealed about Him into something tamer and more manageable that we can manipulate and come to terms with and maybe even safely set aside in some way. But Israel doesn't have that luxury at this moment before Sinai, do they? This kind of fear can be quite subtle in our lives. It can look like not reading your Bible right now, today, or tomorrow, or the next day. Because reading your Bible is a kind of coming before God, and it can be a spiritually intense experience and and unsettling. We'll be convicted of our sin. It will, as a preacher said earlier in the series, this semester, the Bible reads us. The Word of God is sharp. We feel the edge of it. Or it can look like not praying when you ought to be praying. Letting your mind wander when you need to be paying attention. Being happily diverted, readily diverted, when you have business to do with God. Or it can look like avoiding the person you know will call you to account or that has something against you or perhaps who just loves you very well and reminds you most of God. Or... It can look like justifying your actions, explaining away your sin, pretending your sin is under control, not a big deal, or blunting the convicting power of the word preached by playing the role of a sermon critic in your mind, or the word studied by focusing on more comfortable aspects and questions in the text, questions of less spiritual significance perhaps, 
and the truth about God that brings us before him to deal with him. There are countless ways to pull back and stand afar off when we ought to be near and drawing near. And I suppose that we know them all one way or another. And they are all ultimately in vain. There is no escape. But it does not stop us from trying. We are perhaps not so unlike Israel at the foot of Sinai. At times terrified by the prospect of meeting God, sometimes shrinking back when we're called to draw near. And if so, whenever it is so, it is a sure sign that something is wrong within us. But was Israel wrong to be afraid at Mount Sinai? Shouldn't they be unnerved before this holy God? Isn't the fear of God the beginning of wisdom? Doesn't their fear lead them to call out and beg for a mediator? How can that possibly be wrong? Isn't that the occasion where we see Christ here? shining out to us in the text, their need for a mediator? Doesn't this seem like the opposite of calling on the rocks to fall on us and to hide us? Well, we must be somewhat discerning, I think, about this. There is fear and then there is fear. Consider the words of Moses in verse 20, fear not. There's something they're doing that is in the area of fear that they need to stop, that they're commanded to stop. That is not appropriate to the occasion, we might say. That is not consistent with the purpose and the reason that God has called them here and the way that they're supposed to be acting in this moment. Fear not. But then what does he go on to say? For God has come to prove or test you that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. There is a kind of fear that must desist, and there is another kind of fear that must persist. You see, there is a fear of God that does not know the grace of God. That fear would be absolutely appropriate. The only thinkable way for sinners to react to a revelation of God's holiness like this one here at Sinai. But God, yes, our God is a consuming fire and his wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men. And so in a sense, we might say Adam and Eve were exactly right to flee from the presence of God after they had sinned. And the people at the end are right to hide in the rocks. And the people of Israel are right to, to balk and to shrink back and to begin to stand far off when they are called near. And we would be right to do the same in the million subtle ways that we do so, if not for the fact that it's God himself, this holy God who has come down to Sinai, who is calling us near and drawing us in and commanding us to, to turn to him and to be saved to come into communion with him and to know him and to worship him. And this is exactly what God is doing 
That's what he was doing in Adam and Eve when they heard him and Adam and Eve ran and tried to hide from him. He wasn't coming to kill. He was coming to save. And that's what he's doing to all people everywhere, calling all the nations to turn to him and be saved. And that's certainly what he is doing with Israel here at Sinai and with us today, his people everywhere. Because the living God is a God of saving grace. That's the key, isn't it? Sinners everywhere would be right to flee from this holy God. But God is calling sinners everywhere to turn, to repent, and to be saved. And you know what that little phrase, but God, means to you as one of his children as to you, as as a pilgrim of faith, as one who's been unnerved by his holiness, but has seen in him not just something to drive us away, to hide in the rocks, but to draw us near and to keep us close. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, what's he up to? What's his purpose? That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We know what is in that little phrase, but God, all his saving grace towards us in Jesus Christ. But we take this but God and and we give it a, a, a little twist sometimes in our own minds, in our own hearts, I fear. And we make it, again, this is a subtle thing, but we make it about grace as if Grace were some sort of disembodied thing out there in the world, separate from God. But Paul does not write, but grace but rather, but God. There is no saving grace apart from the God of saving grace. It is God, this God, the reality of God, the God revealed here at Sinai, who's come down to visit his people and to meet and to commune with him and to receive them and to receive their worship. The God who saves his people, who is calling them and drawing them, and us too. And we've got to know this about him. We've got to come to terms with God himself. And we have to, we've got to fear the God who is. Not the God our despair tells us there is. Not the God our unbelief insists there is. But the God, God himself shows us that he is. Our jealous God, who would by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, and a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. This covenant-keeping love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God we must fear. And we must fear him for who he is, not who he is not. 
It is God who makes the difference. This God, the one who's descended on Sinai, it is he who is what he is determined to do. It is he who makes the difference and it is he who and what he determines to do that makes the difference. And he was determined to bring his people out of their bondage in Egypt and into communion with him at Sinai. Into communion with himself, the sinner, the rebellious, obstinate, slow to believe, grumbling and complaining sinner, the people that we have seen Israel to be. Into communion with the holy, terrifying, awesome and living God who is. Communion with his awesome majesty and holiness and justice and righteousness and love and mercy and grace, communion with the fullness of who he is. He is the God who has saved Israel out of Egypt. He is the God who has carried them on eagles' wings as he reminds them at the beginning of this whole sort of scene at Sinai. And, and, and why? What is he doing? He's brought them out here into the wilderness to himself. Not so that they might balk or hesitate or doubt or shrink away, but so that they might know him and worship him in spirit and in truth. That they might enter into the enjoyment of him and find in him their great comfort and their blessedness. He has done this not to kill them, but to save them. He is the God of holiness and of grace. And if we fear him as if he were only one or the other, then we're not fearing him rightly. We are not understanding the whole of what is written and what is going on here. We're not fearing the God who is and was and is to come, and it will show. It will show on one hand by our carelessness of sin, if we do not have a clarity about the holiness of our God. And it will show, on the other hand, by a lack of courage and confidence to draw near, if we do not have clarity about how this holy and righteous God is drawing us near by his grace. We see plenty of both in Israel. We've seen it already to this point. We're going to continue to see it as Exodus and continues and and I think we probably see it a bit in ourselves. Which one of us walks that knife's edge perfectly, right? But here at the foot of Sinai, we see them shrinking back as if God is not sufficient for them, the one who's called them to this moment, not to kill them, but to bring them into communion with him. As if he were not a God of saving grace. And isn't that the thing they are constantly stumbling over? And how does God respond to their, to the faithless distortion of their fear, we might say? He does not strike them down in wrath. He meets them with grace upon grace. Fear not is a word of grace. It is the word of the gospel. They deserve to die just like we do, just like all sinners do who encounter the living God like this. And if he wanted to kill them, he would. 
and he could, and no one could stop him. And boy, this really seems like exactly the right time to be struck down, doesn't it? They've been brought before the living God in a way that they had not been brought to before. And what does he do in that moment? He speaks grace to them. And he does it through the mediator that he had already appointed for them. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear, but fear not. By the time we arrive at Exodus 20, two things have been certainly established for us. Israel is a rebellious nation, slow to believe, quick to grumble and complain, constantly stumbling at the prospect that God actually loves them and is sufficient for them. And God is a God of saving grace. He has declared it. He has demonstrated it through many, many mighty and, and wonderful works and many others that we might too easily overlook. And he keeps reminding them of it again and again, of this truth about himself, of who he is and what he's done for them and, and how he is sufficient for them. What more could he reveal of himself on this count than he has revealed to them already? And here, immediately after pronouncing the law, what is he doing? He's providing them with means of grace. Moses and Aaron and the priesthood to be their mediator, burnt offerings and peace offerings that their sin might be dealt with as they come to him and commune with him and offer their thanksgiving to him and enjoy peace with the living God and an altar of earth, a field stone as a place to offer up those sacrifices, which they are forbidden to beautify or to build up, forbidden to contribute any work, any effort on their part to try to commend their offering to God to make it, what, more acceptable in His sight now. They must take what God has provided and rest in the sufficiency of that and commune with Him on His terms. Terms that all ultimately, of course, point them and point us to the promises of the gospel which are fulfilled in yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Why these means of grace? He tells us, so that wherever they are in the world, wherever he causes his name to be remembered, God will come to them there and bless them. That's what he wants with his people and for his people. The fear that holds us back and shrinks away must desist. Because it denies the sufficiency of God's grace for us ultimately in Jesus Christ. But the fear that draws near 
that clings to this gospel of saving grace, the sufficiency of God's grace for us and his provision for us, proclaimed and offered to us in these means of grace that receives from God all that he has done for us and does so with gratitude and joy and and that calls on him like Moses here from the foot of the mountain as it were and and dares to ascend when he commands us to come and and that enters into the splendor of his holiness and, and bears us up on eagle's wings as he brings us into communion with himself. This is the fear of God that must persist, a fear that's united to faith that keeps us from sin and despair and the sin of despair. This is the fear of God that knows who he is, that fears him in spirit and in truth, that fears him as the jealous God who will by no means Clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Fear not, brothers and sisters, but definitely fear. Fear and draw near. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that we have a mediator in Jesus Christ who is sufficient for us in every way that in him and through him we might draw near and offer worship that is acceptable in your sight and commune with you, the living God. Teach us to fear rightly. Teach us to fear truly. Teach us to fear the living God who is. Sanctify our fear, cleanse it from our theological error, cleanse it from the influence of our doubting, unbelieving hearts. Make it pure so that when it is tested, we might not shrink away and stand far off, but that we might come near and stand in that appointed place for, uh, prepared for us where we might commune with you in and through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.